Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is George Georgiev, Associate Professor of Law at Emory University. We'll be discussing his work on human capital management, including his recent Tulane Law Review article, The Human Capital Management Movement in U.S. Corporate Law. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. George, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. George, I'd like to maybe level set this conversation by introducing the concept of human capital management, also called HCM. When you talk about HCM, human capital management, what do you mean? What's the scope of HCM? And how does it fit into maybe a contemporary understanding of management in U.S. corporations? HCM doesn't really have a precise definition, but it's a concept that starts from the premise that workers can be viewed as assets that are as crucial to firm performance and that ought to be managed just as carefully as firms manage physical and financial assets. The idea is to maximize workforce productivity, just like you would maximize the utilization of kind of any other input that the firm uses and to have that redound to the benefit of the firm and particularly shareholders. Why this focus on human capital? Because human capital is what we call an intangible asset. And the significance or the role of intangible assets to firm success has actually increased considerably over the past 40 or 50 years. When you look at historical estimates, and by the way, intangible assets are very difficult to define and measure and value. But when you look at historical estimates, the data suggests that in 1975, in Intangible assets represented about 17% of firm value in the S&P 500. And today, arguably, they represent around 90% of S&P 500 market value. And yet, the argument is there isn't sufficient attention to intangibles, including human capital, in terms of board deliberations, as well as on firms' disclosure reports. And so how to manage the workforce or how to manage human capital, what are the components of human capital management. The components vary again, but normally we think about things like turnover, workforce composition and demographics, workforce training, workforce compensation, health and safety, gender pay equity, supply chain management, the treatment of contractors, as well as, importantly, various diversity and inclusion considerations. You've argued and you've identified in your Tulane Law Review article and subsequent work that you've done, you've identified the emergence of HCM, a movement around HCM as being something that we've seen since maybe the mid to late 2010s. Can you talk about that movement as a movement? What have been some manifestations of the movement? And are there any surprises that we've seen? It's really a multifaceted phenomenon, and I didn't fully appreciate all of the manifestations until I started looking into it more deeply. And because we see different pieces of it, but actually it's been something that's been very systematic and very recent and in some ways very surprising as well. And I'll go through the various manifestations of the HCM movement with respect to corporate governance. The, kind of the first manifestation is really this increased focus on employees, on the workforce and board deliberations. And traditionally, of course, management and the C-suite and various 
mid-level management the personnel have focused on these workforce matters. But what we're seeing now is that it's much more structural and embedded in board-level deliberations. And we see this in terms of boards identifying human capital management as a desirable skill for new board candidates or reporting that existing board members actually have expertise with human capital management. We're seeing human capital management being the focus of various board committees. It started with the compensation committee. Now, in some firms, we're seeing specialized HCM committees and or including human capital within the sustainability or an ESG committee. We're seeing, interestingly, the incorporation of human capital metrics in compensation. So traditionally, incentive-based compensation has been tied to firm performance as measured by stock price and certain metrics derived from stock price. But now we're actually seeing firms tie expressly executive compensation to human capital metrics. We're also seeing shareholder engagement around the issue of human capital management. And so that goes to engagement with boards as well as engagement with management. Here, I'll just highlight two developments. There was an important group petition that a group of shareholders, the Human Capital Management Coalition, filed in 2017. And that kind of kickstarted this focus on HCM and corporate governance. And then a couple of years later, BlackRock embraced the cause of HCM. And Larry Fink, in his annual letter since about 2018, has talked about the workforce and human capital management consistently. And in fact, in some of the more recent letters that Larry Fink sent to the CEOs of his portfolio companies, he talked about human capital and climate equally as having equal importance. Interestingly, in 2022, he actually identified human capital as the quote-unquote most urgent priorities for corporate CEOs. It's a completely organic development coming from asset managers and other asset managers such as State Street and Vanguard have also embraced this. We've also seen shareholder resolutions focused on human capital management and the way the board looks at human capital concerns. There's also been a very intense focus on developing metrics and standards around human capital reporting. So we have about half a dozen organizations that have been doing very intense work on human capital reporting, such as SASB, now it's part of the uh, IFRS Foundation, the World Economic Forum, and others. There's also been a legislative push to focus on human capital management and to require public companies to actually report data on human capital. We've had at least four bills over the past three years. Some of them actually proposing that the SEC require very detailed, very granular reporting of various HCM matters. And then in August 2020, we had the Securities and Exchange Commission adopt a mandatory rule that requires firms, public companies to report on their human capital management policies. And the SEC didn't define what it means by human capital management, and it only required HCM reporting to the extent uh, such disclosure is material to an understanding of the company's business taken as a whole. So a very principles-based kind of soft approach, but nevertheless, including human capital reporting in a mandatory disclosure requirement, which was in itself quite notable because for the 88 or so years uh, prior that we've had the securities disclosure regime, the only uh, requirement relating to the workforce was a requirement reporting requirement was to report the total number of employees. And then in 2018, we had some additional uh, reporting around the pay ratio. But the human capital management reporting requirements 2020 kind of stands in stark contrast to what we've 
had on the side of executive compensation. So if you look at prior to 2020, if you look at any corporate disclosure document, annual report, you will see eight, 10 pages focused on executive compensation. So the compensation received by a handful of executives, and you will see actually nothing about how firms manage employees and compensation about related to rank and file workers. And so in that sense, the August 2020 reporting requirement introduced as part of a modernization of Regulation SK was actually quite remarkable. When you take all these developments together, I argue that this is an unprecedented push, really, to consider worker-related matters in board-level governance and also to report information about the workforce to external constituencies. A traditional way to think about economic activity or production functions is to think about it as having one of two inputs, either capital or labor, and the two inputs are conceptually distinct. One thing that the HCM movement does is require thinking about human capital in terms of being an asset. If we zoom out a little bit and think about it at that theoretical level, what does it mean for workers or their efforts to be viewed as assets of the company, the same as a financial asset or physical asset, perhaps? And is this the only way or frame that we have for thinking about the role of workers in corporate governance? Or are there other alternatives that we could compare this approach or this movement to? That's a very important question, and there is a lot to unpack here. Obviously, workers as assets is a metaphor, and it's a metaphor that is in many ways problematic because, of course, workers and even workers' expertise as embedded in them, the human capital, is not actually a traditional asset. It doesn't fit the definition of an asset according to accounting standards. But it's a metaphor that is quite useful in the sense that training, development, the expertise embedded in employees actually contributes to firm success and to the production function, as you say, just as much as physical assets, financial assets, and the like. Conceptually, treating workers as assets carries certain implications for corporate governance. And treating workers as assets is at the core of human capital management. That means that we just manage this asset in the most efficient way possible in order to ensure firm success. However, you know, that then may be measured. Now, there are other ways to think about the role of workers and of employees in the corporate enterprise. So the other way of thinking about the role of workers is to think of workers as investors of human capital. So just like shareholders invest financial capital in the firm, and then that investment, firm-specific investment, is protected through various governance, information, property rights, so too can we think of employees or workers investing their human capital in the firm and then thinking of that as a firm-specific investment, which it is, and then using the machinery of corporate law and corporate governance to protect that investment. And that would then imply that workers should have maybe some governance rights, some more enhanced information rights, veto rights, and so on. But this is not what we're seeing with respect to the human capital management movement. It treats workers conceptually merely as assets. I'll just say a lot of this is implicit. It hasn't been expressly theorized. You do hear this rhetoric of workers as assets, but in terms of the implications of that, they haven't been unpacked. And that's one thing that I tried to do in the article. In your work, you talk about the HCM movement and this push to consider HCM and the role of employees in corporate governance as being unprecedented. But I wonder if there are scholars or activists or policymakers who would say, no, 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 we've been making similar arguments for years about the importance of greater involvement in governance for employees. Would there be those protests that, no, this isn't so unprecedented after all? 
And if so, what might you say to those folks about what has come before? That's a terrific question because, of course, the role and status of employees in corporate governance is one of corporate law's evergreen questions. We've actually had debates around this pretty much in every decade since the 1960s. We have had a bunch of reform agendas and proposals from policy entrepreneurs from corporate governance activists, and we've had academic work that analyzes the role of employees. Now, what is interesting here is that the human capital management movement is actually completely untethered from these prior reform agendas. But actually to understand what HCM means and its various attributes, it's important to consider it and compare it against those prior reform agendas. It is unprecedented for several reasons. The first reason is that it has been successful. So just in a few years, HCM went from an idea, went from something that Larry Fink advocated for and the Human Capital Management Coalition petitioned the SEC to acquire disclosure around HCM. Uh, that was in 2017. Then just in 2020, we actually got an actual disclosure requirement. So that was pretty rapid. So the success of HCM is unprecedented compared to those prior reform agendas. And then the other distinctive feature of HCM or the HCM movement is that it focuses on workers as assets. And it's tied to this idea of shareholder primacy in the sense that the end goal of this set of reforms, of the reporting of the board level consideration of HCM is really to ensure the financial success of the firm. And it isn't so much focused at all on the well-being of employees or improving the power of employees in corporate governance. So it's helpful to think about these prior reform agendas. And in the article, I went back and taxonomized these prior reform proposals and agendas in three buckets. Of course, some of them are mutually overlapping. We can think about a worker empowerment agenda and the most prominent initiative or policy proposal here would be to allow workers to elect members of the board. And we've had those proposals for decades, and we've seen a resurgence of those proposals, but those proposals have gone nowhere. Other interventions along similar lines would probably be to give workers greater information rights, to make them the beneficiaries of certain fiduciary duties, and so on and so forth. And here, the focus isn't on shareholders and shareholder wealth maximization, but it's really a focus on making a corporate governance intervention to actually improve the lot of employees, to redistribute surplus as between shareholders and employees by giving workers or employees greater governance rights. So another agenda that we can think about is the worker shareholder agenda. And here, we're not giving workers any additional or special governance rights, but we're actually giving or harnessing the, the governance rights that are embedded in the financial capital that workers or employees already own by virtue of their retirement savings and using that in order to improve working conditions or to require firms to basically adopt more worker-friendly policies. And then finally, we can think about a stakeholder primacy agenda where the goal isn't so much to change the means of corporate governance and the various mechanisms, but really to change the end of corporate governance and to have boards as they exist today, consider the interests of workers alongside the interests of shareholders. Now, HCM differs from these three agendas, but I think juxtaposing it against those existing or prior historical agendas actually is an important part of understanding what HCM is, what it means, and why it's been so successful. And 
I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that as far as the role and status of employees in corporate governance go, we actually do have a very different experience internationally than what we've seen in the United States. So some of these ideas that have been floating around in the United States for decades are actually realities in other countries. Most prominently, workers do sit on boards in Germany and in certain other uh, European countries, we have works councils and they provide various types of input, corporate management, they have certain consultation information and even veto rights. And the interesting development most recently is that even in the United Kingdom, where we normally think of corporate governance being very similar to what we have in the United States, we have seen worker-focused reforms that go in a very different direction than the human capital management movement. And I talk about this in the article. For the rest of this interview, I'd like to turn to some of the regulatory developments around HCM that have been recent or that might be forthcoming in the near to mid term. You've noted that just a couple of years ago, really, the SEC adopted new HCM disclosure requirements for firms. I wonder if you could talk about that as somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about how this topic, how the theory of HCM really maps into the regulatory space. What did the SEC get right in terms of that HCM disclosure rulemaking, and where would you have liked to have seen them do things a bit differently? I think it's important to acknowledge that what the SEC did in August 2020 was actually very helpful and a very bold development. Because when you think about the preceding four years at the SEC, we actually saw a lot of deregulation, a lot of modernization of disclosure requirements, which pretty much meant that a bunch of disclosure requirements were scaled back. And so in that landscape, HCM was the only topic where we actually saw a new disclosure requirement, and that addressed uh, a prominent shortcoming of the existing disclosure regime, namely the fact that even though intangible assets are so important, even though human capital is so important to firm success, there was nothing that firms were required to say about human capital, other than, of course, just the total number of employees. And so, in August 2020, the SEC included a very modest disclosure requirement in Regulation SK, basically along the lines of if HCM or if human capital is material to the way you manage the company, then tell us how it matters. And this was a principles-based disclosure requirement, so there weren't any metrics or any specific data points that firms were required to disclose. Upon the adoption of the rule, the then chair of the SEC, Jay Clayton, said that he expects, certainly, that to the extent firms use specific metrics, they will disclose them. But the rule itself didn't provide any standardization, and it was criticized for those reasons, because one of the attributes of mandatory Disclosure, or one of the goals of mandatory disclosure is to get standardized information in areas where it makes sense and to be able to compare firms. And if each firm produces an unstructured narrative, then that makes it very difficult to compare. And the actual experience with the August 2020 disclosure requirement has borne out actually many of the criticisms of principles-based disclosure requirements. And so we've started seeing some really interesting empirical work that has come out. And one study that came out just a couple of weeks ago looked at a sample size of 3,600 unique public firms and their reporting requirements around HCM and how they changed. And the data actually confirms many of the pathologies of principles-based disclosure requirements and voluntary or unstructured reporting. The study found that there is a variation in the amount of disclosure, in the tone of disclosure, in the what they call numerical intensity of disclosure, in the readability of disclosure. And they found that firms, the firms that we would want to see report more HCM information, uh, particularly firms that aren't doing 
doing so well or firms that are maybe loss making aren't actually providing that disclosure and firms that are doing very well on a bunch of different counts are using HCM in order to the HCM disclosure to emphasize how great they are. And that really doesn't help because with any mandatory disclosure requirement, we would want to get both the negative and the positive information. And if firms are over disclosing the positive information and then not actually reporting the quote unquote negative information, then that's problematic. And it doesn't really give you a complete picture of firm operations and firm success and the likelihood of firm success going forward. Another thing that we can take away from what happened in 2020 was that actually everyone at the SEC, so all five commissioners, agreed on the importance of human capital to firm operations and the fact that there should be some disclosure around human capital. Now, there was a difference of opinion as to what this disclosure should look like, and that's why ultimately the rule that incorporated HCM into Regulation SK was actually passed on a three to two vote. But even the dissenting commissioners actually agreed that human capital was important and they wanted to see more human capital, more specific human capital disclosure. And that was one of the reasons they dissented, not because they disagreed with human capital. There is, I would say, near universal agreement that human capital information is important, is material, and uh, there should be some level of disclosure around it. Looking forward, could you give us some thoughts about what might be in store in the short to midterm for HCM regulation or HCM disclosure regulation? And do you have any recommendations or insights that you'd like to offer on that front? It looks like we will see the SEC revisit the existing HCM disclosure requirement. And there certainly has been a lot of interest from investors for the SEC to beef up HCM disclosure and to actually require disclosure of specific metrics. And Certainly, some metrics lend themselves to standardization more easily than others. You can think of health and safety metrics, for example, being fairly easy to standardize and report. Metrics around turnover, around retention. Certain compensation metrics can also be disclosed. And actually, this is purely financial information. So you can even imagine seeing compensation expense be included in the financial statements as well, or notes to the financial statements. And I think the SEC would like to go in that direction. Of course, the SEC is doing a lot of other things, but I think there is a lot of legitimate investor interest from mainstream investors. We've also had the SEC Investor Advisory Committee continue looking at HCM disclosure and emphasizing its importance. And we've also had a petition for rulemaking just a couple of months ago around workforce investment. I think we will see a framework around HCM disclosure coming from the SEC, how detailed it's going to be. I think it's it's an open question. The more detailed it is, the more pushback it will encounter. And of course, there are some also very difficult issues that the SEC will have to grapple with and that will be debated during the notice and comment phase of the rulemaking process. Uh, And that's going to be whether to include contractors, third-party contractors, and how far down or whether at all to go within the supply chain, because many firms actually outsource a lot of the work. And so if you're really getting human capital management reporting for, let's say, a company like Amazon, you're actually not getting a lot of the third-party contractors that Amazon works with and is dependent on. From a financial point of view, actually, that is also arguably important information. What would you like listeners to take from this interview and from the article and your other work on HCM? What should they be thinking about? 
First and foremost, I think it's important to realize that human capital management and the human capital management movement is here and here to stay. Second, it is actually a positive development, even though it has certain shortcomings. It's a largely positive development because it really represents corporate law and financial accounting catching up with economic realities. The rise of intangibles, we already talked about that. If talent is important and if training and development and employees are central to the success of the modern firm, then firms and their boards should be focused on these inputs. And then also that information should be reported externally and it should be reflected in the financial statements in order to enable analysts and investors to value firms more accurately. I think another takeaway is the multifaceted nature of the HCM movements. We often tend to hear just isolated parts of it, but it's actually part of a larger coordinated effort to bring the workforce into corporate governance. However, the way the workforce is brought into corporate governance is also something that should be better understood. And this is where this idea of workers as assets versus treating workers as investors of human capital, which would give them different governance rights and different power within the firm comes in. So I think the theoretical, the historical and the comparative context are very important. This leads to kind of the cautious note, which is that HCM is a positive development, but it's not going to be, in my view, a solution to many of the problems related to the workforce across the economy. So for example, under training, high levels of turnover, differential pay structures, agenda pay gap, income inequality, and all the other things that if you ask labor advocates, they will say, these are problems related to the workforce in the United States. This diminishes U.S. competitiveness. These are really bigger structural problems, and it's unlikely that human capital management, the human capital management movement, will be able to address them. But that shouldn't detract from the importance of human capital management as a phenomenon, as a movement, as a set of initiatives. And then, of course, if we zoom out, I think it's important to realize that First of all, it's still early days for human capital management and the human capital management movement may evolve in different directions. We may actually see more stakeholder focused corporate governance interventions around employees that would maybe overlap with some of these historical reform agendas. And then second on the meta picture is that human capital management is really a part of the ESG movement or push for the consideration of ESG factors in corporate law which unfortunately has become quite controversial. And so the success, the future success of HCM may actually have nothing to do with the merits of HCM, but may actually get tangled up in kind of the pushback against ESG. But that that remains to be seen. And I think on the whole, HCM is actually a very positive and very significant development in corporate governance. Our guest today has been George Georgiev, Associate Professor of Law at Emory University. We've discussed his work on human capital management, including his recent Tulane Law Review article, The Human Capital Management Movement in U.S. Corporate Law. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. George, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.